that God would speak to us today. Um, please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And our, our passage for today is just three verses, and yet they're jam-packed with instruction for Christ's church. If you remember where we've come from in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, Paul laid out the emphasis, the priority for why he left Timothy in Ephesus and what he hopes Timothy will accomplish until Paul returns. Paul is hoping to return to Ephesus to do some of these things himself, and he's tasked younger Timothy with doing them himself till he returns. And what he wants Timothy to do, he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The aim of our charge, he says, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So that's what Paul's after is sound teaching, sound doctrine leading to godly lives. Love lived out. And starting in chapter 2, after laying this sort of foundation, we get to specifics. And last week, we saw that one of the areas that Paul wants love lived out on a foundation of doctrine is prayer for the world, a heart for the nations, a heart for all peoples. Prayer is to be made, and intercessions are to be made, and thanksgivings are to be made for all peoples, precisely because, according to verse 4, God desires all peoples to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then we learn that the gospel is designed for all peoples, not one tribe, one nation, not one social economic status, but all peoples, because Christ's death is sufficient for all peoples who will come. And the, the Ephesian church is told to get its eyes outside of the borders of its church, outside of their own tribe, their own group, to the world, because that is God's heart, and to pray in a way consistent with God's heart. And that notion of prayer becomes the, the lynch transitional point now to our passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 10, preparing our hearts for public worship. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so that is our, our passage for today. And in it, Paul is talking about primarily gathering corporately as the church. It may not jump out of the passage, but I think it, it can be shown clearly that's what he's after. Gatherings like what we're doing right now is what he has in mind. There are several reasons for this. The first is he speaks to men, plural, not singular. He's not saying this is what a man should do when praying. This is what the men should do. And then it's in every place, literally in the Greek, in each place. And the implication is in each place that the church gathers. In each place that the church gathers, Paul wants men doing something. And in each place where the church gathers, Paul wants women doing something. 
And then jump on down to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. I think makes this even more clear. That we're talking about gathering together as the church. That is what is in view specifically. 1 Timothy 3, and sort of the, the theme verse for the entire book, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if, you del- if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I'm writing these things, Timothy. I'm writing these things, Martinsdale. So that if I delay, we will know how to behave, how to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God, the household of God, the family of God. And so the whole purpose of the letter is family conduct. When the church comes together as that family, how are they to order themselves? And, and we're going to go from here to, to the offices in the church, elder, deacon. We're going to deal with leadership issues. So that's the, that's the immediate context, is, is gatherings, which is why the title of today's message is Preparing Our Hearts for Public Worship. That, that is what is in view. The principles applied to public worship certainly extend beyond it. They're not limited to it, but that is the focus of what is in view. And the instructions break down into two points. Paul's instruction for men in verse 8, and Paul's instruction for women in 9 through 10. And even these instructions are not gender absolute. We'll see the things that Paul has to say to men would still apply to women, the things that Paul says to women would equally apply to men, but he's, he's identifying areas where they need specific exhortation, instruction, restraint, the, the besetting weaknesses of men and women, you might say. So, so when we're talking to the men, ladies, listen up. It still applies to you indirectly. And, and men, when we, we shift to Paul's instruction to women, don't nod off, but, but listen up, because what Paul and God through Paul has to say is equally applicable. So we're going to look first at Paul's instruction for men, verse 8. He says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we'll sort of look at this through the who, what, where, and how. The who is the men. And the word here for man is is man-specific, is oner, man, male, husband, as in contrast to woman. This isn't mankind in general, this is the men he's addressing. And the what? What does he want of these men? He wants them to be praying. To be praying. The verb in in the Greek stresses continuous habitual activity. Ongoing repetition. um, In its verbal aspect. And so what he's calling on as the church gathers that the men are habitually, consistently, regularly leading in prayer. Now of course this doesn't mean Paul doesn't want women praying. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about women praying. But, but as the church gathers together corporately, the men should be leading this charge. We just last week saw God's heart for the world, God's heart for the gospel reaching all peoples. And that the church, when they gather, should have that heart and should have their prayers informed by that heart and should be praying for the gospel to reach the peoples. And who should be leading the charge? Men. Men should be leading that charge. And, and I think the reason he's calling them out here is frequently we are not. I don't know about you, but I know that as a man, frequently my desire is to do things, to fix things. If there's a problem, I want to fix it. I want to do something. And yet prayer is the, the epitome of recognizing my 
impotence, my inability to do, get anything done apart from God's grace. And so I find, and this is frequent in my experience in dealing with men, that there can be this desire to skip over prayer, maybe reserve prayer for the hard things I can't handle, and just jump to doing, working, accomplishing. And so it's not surprising then that Paul is urging the men to first and foremost be men of prayer. Um, I know our church doesn't have a, a prayer meeting, but the church that I first attended in New Hampshire did on Wednesday nights. A lot of churches do. And for those of you who've ever been to them, who predominantly attends them? What, what gender? Is it men or women? It's largely women. You, you see why men need this exhortation. This tends to be an area we're weaker in, I think, than the ladies. And it shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so. He wants us to be praying. And in the context, praying not just for ourselves and for our families and for our church. Do pray for that. But praying for the world, for the nations. The gospel would reach unreached peoples. That hardened hearts would be softened. That blind eyes would see light. That deaf ears would be opened. Laboring on our knees in prayer. If we, if we really grasped our weakness and what scripture says about that. And if we really grasped God's power and omnipotence what the scripture says about that, if we believed that, we would never be off our knees. And yet again, as a man, it's so easy to trust in my own power, my own ability. I'm going to go do stuff and then reserve prayer for the hard things I can't handle when, if I'm honest, I'm thinking rightly that I can't take my next breath without God's grace. I can't take the next step without God's empowering strength. And I think men... We need to be reminded of that. So the what? Be praying. Where? Well, we've already covered this largely, but in every place the church gathers. In every place the church gathers. That's, that's the focus here. It's church gatherings. Literally in each place. So men to be praying. And again, this doesn't limit it to church gatherings as if this is the only place to pray. This is Paul's emphasis. As the church orders itself and conducts itself, it should be marked by men of prayer. And how? How are they to prayer? And here's really the heart of the exhortation, the how. He gives a positive and a negative, a put off and a put on. Positively, he says he wants men lifting holy hands. Negatively, not in anger and disputing. He wants men to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, and he goes on. Now, the focus of lifting holy hands, don't get caught up in the posture. Um, I don't think that's Paul's primary focus. Certainly, praying with your hands outstretched to heaven was a prominent way of praying in the Old Testament. Um, when Solomon dedicated the temple and prayed, that was how he prayed. And there's examples in the Bible, both New Testament and Old, of that being a common and frequent position of prayer. I think more Paul is assuming that that's how people are praying. The, the Old Testament also gives other examples of prayer. This is not the only prescribed form. And I think the point is there's a lot of freedom in prayer. People are praying standing, with hands spread out, with their heads bowed, with their heads lifted up to heaven, kneeling. And of course, there's the way Abraham prayed, face down in the ground, arms stretched out. So the point isn't that there's one holy and righteous way to pray and all others are wrong, as if the, the men at Ephesus are really men of prayer, but 
Wouldn't you know it? They're just not doing it the right way. They pray kneeling, and Paul wants them standing with their hands up. That's not the point. If you want to pray with your hands upstretched, praise God. Be free. Wonderful. That's not the point. The point is with holy hands. That's the point. Holiness. God's not fundamentally after our posture. He's after our hearts. Holy hands is, is a reference to an Old Testament idea. Clean hands. We, we studied Psalm 24 about a month or two ago. And in it we read Psalm 24, 3 to 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Clean hands speak to one of two things. Personal holiness and a clean conscience. Cleanness from staying away from sin and a cleanness that comes from when we sin, confessing, repenting, forsaking it. That's the cleanness that's called for. Paul's looking for men to lead his church, Christ's church, in prayer, but they need to be holy men. They need to be men with clean consciences and with good testimony. And it's a simple truth that sin in our lives, undealt with sin, I'm not talking about the sin we confess and struggle with. I'm talking about the sins that we sort of cherish and hold on to and, and sort of pamper. It's not a big sin. It's a small problem. I'll deal with it later. I can stop whenever I want type of sins are going to stop us from prayer. I know that's true in my life. That whenever I'm harboring some sin in my life, my prayer life dries up. Prayer can keep us from sin, and sin can keep us from prayer. And so it's important to understand it's not just any old type of prayer, but prayer that comes from holiness, holy hands, clean consciences, people who are not afraid to come before God. People who know they are right with their God. People who know they're at peace with their Lord. Negatively, it's to be done putting off without anger and disputing. Without anger and disputing. And again, I think Paul is identifying weaknesses that men tend to uh, have. It's not that men are the only people who can be angry, the only people who can quarrel, but certainly um, when you think of which, which gender does more of the brawling and the fighting and the arguing, it, it probably comes to be men, I would think, in my experience. It's also interesting, this, this picture, this word picture, people talk about raising their hands in anger, and, and Paul would rather have them raise their hands in prayer. And what's going to stop this type of unified prayer for the nations is going to be anger. It's going to be bickering. It's going to be quarreling. It's going to be disputes. But the picture here, get this, is the church coming together unified with a unified vision, with a unified heart modeled after God's heart, unified desire for the nations, praying as one people with one voice, with a loud amen that the gospel would reach all peoples everywhere. And that's not going to happen if when the church gathers together, there's quarreling and fighting. And this ties back, turn back to chapter 1, to Paul's concern about doctrine. This isn't a separate topic. This is a subset. The overarching concern is, is preserve the teaching. Preserve the doctrine. Why? So that people will live out lives of love. An example being the love shown in praying for the nations. Chapter 1, verse 4. Four, describing the false teaching. 
nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now jump to chapter 6 where we get a further description of this false teaching and what it produces. Chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving, now get this, for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So we haven't fully left this topic of teaching. One of the causes of strife, certainly not the only cause of strife, but one of the causes of strife is this sort of periphery novelty teachings and doctrines in a church where people are caught up with Bible codes and, and the like. It's going to be a quarreling factious church. It's certainly not the only way you can get to quarreling. But it, in Ephesus, in, in Paul's day, that seemed to be the, one of the primary results of this type of novel teaching or these factions and the church would gather together and rather than praying for the world rather than living out holiness they'd quarrel over who got the bible code right who got the genealogies right who who figured it out not in love not producing the holiness that god desires the stewardship that god requires and so i just want to stand back in the box here afterwards it's just four questions four heart check questions you men, and, and not just the men, but for everyone, but primarily the men, as you, as you prepare yourself to gather, just four questions, sort of apply this principle to us. First, am I overly self-reliant? Am I overly self-reliant? And the reason why I ask that question that way is this, an over-sense of self-reliance and self-confidence will destroy your prayer life. Prayer does not come to us naturally, except in those times when we are aware of our need. When we are aware that we are but dust. We are like a flower that blooms one day and the sun comes out and dries it up. When you're aware of that, you'll be on your knees. Jesus contrasts that with, with the rich man who's, who's, whose silos are full and he's trusting in himself. People like that don't pray. They certainly don't pray as they ought. So am I overly self-reliant? Self-reliance is, is the biggest hindrance to prayer. Pride and self-reliance and that self-confidence that teams up and, and you sort of get this notion like I'll handle the small stuff and I'll come to God for the big stuff. It's just not the way the Bible views things. Am I overly self-reliant too? Am I keeping my conscience clean? Am I keeping my conscience clean? You know, like when I come to gather with the people of God, and this should be something we're doing daily, but especially when we're coming to gather as, as Christ's body, is my conscience clean? Is there, is there any space between me and my Lord? Am I walking in the light, or am I walking, am I taking a few steps off 
into darkness. And the reason for that is this. If you remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about the body working with with joints and, and muscles all working together, it's only when each part functions properly every piece working together that the body builds itself up in love. So if various pieces of Christ's body show up and they're out of joint, strained, and not functioning properly, the entire body suffers. So you don't, don't think that your conscience and your sins are a private matter. It's not. You, you show up here with unconfessed sin in your heart, with some area that you're not right with the Lord, the entire body, Paul says, suffers. The entire body. And that will then affect the way the body prays for the world, and that will affect the gospel going out. Third, am I at peace with my brothers and sisters? Am I at peace with my brothers and sisters? You know, we can, we can smile and pretend we're at peace with everybody, um, but... The real question is in our hearts, are we at peace with everybody? You know, this is your family. If you're, if you're a child of God, if Martinsdale is your home church, then this is your family, like them or not. This is your family. You don't get to pick your family. You don't get to pick who you love. Um, you, you don't. I like to think we do, but we don't. This is your family, and we need to be at peace with each other. We need to be at peace with ourselves. And if we're not, we need to do the hard work of making peace. Whether that's just me getting over some personal offense that I have against somebody, or whether it's me getting up and going and talking to somebody that I need to talk to. It needs to be done. And the the logic of Paul is if that's not being done, the prayer life's going to be hindered. And then going back further in the passage, the gospel going out to the nations is going to be hindered. This, This eventually becomes huge in things that we're tempted to think are small little matters. Fourth, am I pursuing unity or my own way? Am I pursuing unity or my own way? You know, this, this issue of divisiveness and quarrels. You know, it's so easy to show up to fight for your view. It's sad how many churches split over silly things like the color of the carpet, the, you know, the style of worship music, the worship wars. I mean, when churches divide over doctrine, at least that's somewhat biblical. If it's a, if it's a cardinal doctrine, it's good, it's healthy. But when churches divide over trivial things, it's just sad. It's a poor testimony, and certainly a church doing that is not going to be praying for the world. I know it may sound like an overstatement, but I do not believe it is to say that an issue, especially for us men, of, of not keeping our hands clean, of not dealing with offenses, and of quarreling, isn't just our own private issue. It affects the body. And in affecting the body, it affects our prayer life. And in affecting our prayer life, it affects the advance of the gospel in the nations. So I think I can say with the Paul's authority, with God's authority, that we need to keep our hands clean. We need to deal with anger. And we need to stop bickering for the sake of the gospel going out to the nations. You know, and, and you need to remember that next time you're, you're angry at someone. You need to think, look, I need to deal with this because the gospel needs to go out to Uganda. And you probably aren't going to make that connection, but it's made right here. It's made right here. Churches led by godly men with clean hands, clean consciences, at peace with one another, not quarreling, are leading the charge of the gospel reaching the world in prayer. 
That's Paul's vision for men. Let's turn now to Paul's vision for women, his instruction for women. And this breaks down really to two categories, two points. His concern when they gather together is that they have proper clothing and fitting accessories. Proper clothing, fitting accessories. Let's just read. Likewise, the likewise here refers to Paul's desire. He desires men to do a certain thing. Likewise, he desires that all the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so again, we've got a list of pros and cons. We've got a list of things to do, things not to do, things to be adorned and to um, bring and show to the world and things that should not be. And we'll look at it in uh, four contrasts. Four contrasts. First, um, clothing that is respectable versus clothing that is costly. Clothing that is respectable versus clothing that is costly. We see that at the beginning and end of verse 9. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Then at the end, not in costly attire. Respectable, costly. That's the first contrast. Now the word respectable is just the word cosmoi. We should get the word cosmos or order. Cosmetics come from this word as they order the face. And it's, it's the notion of orderliness, respectableness, certain amount of put-togetherness. In other words, there's two extremes we're to avoid here. On the one extreme is this sort of, I just rolled out of bed. Um, I'm completely disordered. Anyone who looks at me can tell that I am disordered. That's to be avoided. Women are not to do that. And this would also apply to men. But on the other end of the extreme is this sort of flash and flare that comes from expensive, glamorous clothing. Um, and that's to be avoided as well. Women are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel, but to avoid costly apparel. And the, the issue isn't, well, how much can we spend? This, again, gets to the heart. The issue is, what is my concern? You know, we can spend good money for quality clothing. But I remember growing up as a child, I had a friend whose mother would take the little alligators and, and take them off the shirts and then sew them onto new shirts. <laughs> At a certain point, you're just paying money for the brand, right? Right? At a certain point, you're just paying money for the brand. It's one thing to shell out some money for quality, for value, durability. At a certain point, it's about the prestige. It's about the, uh, what we're communicating. You, know, you can communicate a lot about your social status by the way you dress. You don't, it's not hard. You can do it subtle. You know, the type of clothes you wear, the type of the way you do it, you can, let, you can tell people a whole lot about yourself and your economic status by the way you dress. In order to avoid that, it's a snare. It's a temptation. The church can stumble over it. In James, James has to rebuke the church for playing favoritism. If a guy shows up with a gold ring fine cloak. They give them a good seat. So we, the church, have got to guard ourselves against playing favorites to the rich, but the rich have got to watch out against flaunting their stuff. Against flaunting their stuff. Second contrast, respectable versus costly. Second is modesty versus self-attention. Modesty versus self-attention. The word modesty, I think, is largely misunderstood. Just take a moment, and, and if you Think to yourself what you would give as a definition for modesty. Um, I think you may be surprised. 
in a number of dictionaries I looked up, and this holds true both for the Greek and the English, but I'll use the American Heritage Dictionary, modesty. Having or proceeding from a disinclination to call attention to oneself. Retiring or diffident. Observing conventional priorities in speech, behavior, or dress, free from showiness or ostentation, unpretentious. There wasn't a single word in there about causing others to sin or stumbling or temptation. The heart of modesty is simply not wanting to draw attention to myself. Now, culturally, there's, there's one primary way our culture encourages women to draw attention to themselves, and that's where our understanding of modesty largely comes from. Um, immodesty in regards to things that might cause a brother to stumble, things that would make someone alluring. But it's broader than that. You can be immodest by, you know, having two little clothes on. You can be immodest by having a big slogan that says something profane on it. That's, that's immodest. Um, it's just drawing attention to yourself. You could have like flashing glow sticks on your shirt. That would be immodest. It would be drawing attention to yourself. Um, and so the contrast, that explains the contrast, is self-attention. You know, Sherry Crandall used to say, and I thought this was wonderful, Sherry Crandall would talk about modesty. It's a hard attitude that when you arrive in a room, you're not looking for it to be, here I am, but rather arriving and saying, there you are. See, it's a servant's heart, not a master's heart. It's a servant heart. In Philippians 2, um, verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, if you're dressing to impress, if you're dressing to draw attention, to, to show what you got, you think you're pretty important. And so the answer isn't wear burlap sack. The answer is develop a heart that's others-focused. Modesty, not self-attention. Three, self-controlled versus self-indulgent. Self-controlled versus self-indulgent. Again, in verse 9, after modesty, with self-control. Now, the, the contrast to self-control isn't found in this passage, but if you turn over to chapter 5, you'll see it clearly. Chapter 5 verse 5 and 6. Speaking of widows. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So self-controlled versus self-indulgent. And this word for self-control is used as one of the four cardinal virtues in Platonic philosophy. It signifies a command over bodily passions, a state of self-mastery in the area of appetite. The basic meaning of the word has different nuances and connotations and represents the habitual inner self-government with its restraint and reign on all passions and desires which would hinder temptation from arising. In effect, Paul is saying that when such attitudes self-consciously control a woman's mind, the result is evident in her immodest apparel. So a heart that's focused on others, not showy, not glamour, respectable, modest, self-controlled. Self-controlled. Our third, our fourth, sorry, our fourth 
contrast then is, um, no, sorry, that's modesty, that's self-controlled, is fitting accessories. Fitting accessories. And so here he says, let your adornment not be, verse, the end of verse 9, braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. So what are our, what are our accessories going to be? Um, it, it was a fashion in Paul's day for the women to sew gold and jewels into their hair to braid it in. That was what was fashionable. That was what, um, you know, their, their supermodels would have been doing. Um, and that, that's, not, that's not our style, but it was the style of the day. And you, you can imagine the temptation for a young woman who wants to be viewed as beautiful, who doesn't want to be beautiful, who doesn't want praise from people, um, to, to want to follow suit. And Paul says, no, don't find your beauty there. Your adornment what you, what you put on shouldn't be that, but rather it's good works versus, and then you can write what you want here, jewelries, younger folks, bling. You can, you can write bling down. They can explain it to you later. Um, jewelry, accessories, your, 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 your accessories, the thing that catches people's eye is not the earrings you're wearing, the, the necklace you have on, the watch you have, the car you drive. It's good works. See, good works aren't as flashy, and they're not as easy to get. See, if you have a credit card, you can go get some bling. You can go get some, some gold, some jewels. Good, good works take time. They don't always get noticed immediately. Character takes a long time to form. And the world's not terribly interested in character. You know, the last time you saw, you know, Miss America pageant, they didn't just spend a lot of time talking about their character, did they? Now, that's not really the measurement of evaluation. Character. So it's good works versus jewelry. And, and again, it's not that jewelry's bad. If you read Song of Songs, Solomon gives his wife jewelry. Um, that, that's not the problem. The problem is finding your beauty in that. Letting that be your adornment. Letting that be your um, eye candy. What, what catches people's attention. What you're known for. So we got our four contrasts. Respectable clothing versus costly clothing. Modesty versus self-attention. Self-controlled versus self-indulgent. Good works versus jewelry, bling, what have you. And what's really at stake here is the wisdom in the world versus God's wisdom. To turn in your Bibles to, to 1 John. Because what makes this so hard is there is a wisdom of this world. There is a fashion of this world. And the desire to fit in, the desire just to be fashionable. You know, not, not trying to tempt other people to sin, not even necessarily trying to show stuff off, just, just trying to fit in. Trying to, to look current, to stay up with the latest fashion is, is challenging. And, and John writes this in, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world and the world is passing away with its desires. 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, Paul is interested in women adorning themselves with good works. Our culture is not. Cosmo is not. You know, e-entertainment news is not concerned with that. Um, that. That's not what we're after in this world. And so this, this is a stark contrast. And, and because the wisdom of this age is if you got it, flaunt it, work it. Um, the, the clothes that are sold, the fashions are in accord with that. And so the, today's fashions are largely immodest. They're all about drawing attention to oneself, to one's shape, to, to whatever. And so this is where it becomes difficult because for some people, it, maybe it is an issue of I want to, to, to show my stuff. For others, it just might be I want to fit in. I want to be normal. I want to, I want to be popular. I want to, you know, I want to be trendy. And it's not saying you can't be trendy and modest. You can't be trendy and godly, but it's going to be tough and it's going to take a lot of discernment to be able to pull it off. I think it can be done. You know, if you're asking yourself, you know, how do you know where to draw the line? And John MacArthur is a great quote. He says, how does a woman discern the sometimes fine line between proper dress and dressing to be the center of attention? The answer starts in the intent of the heart. A woman should examine her motives and goals and the way she dresses. Is her intent to show the grace and beauty of womanhood? Is it to reveal a humble heart devoted to worshiping God? Or is it to call attention to herself and flaunt her beauty? A woman who focuses on worshiping God will consider carefully how she is dressed because her heart will dictate her wardrobe and appearance. See, the answer is simply this. If you get the right heart attitude, a servant's heart attitude, not one that's fighting for your rights, you'll know what the dress. It's not about making a list of rules and here's a checklist and, and your dress has to be this. That, that's not the right way. It's about the heart. It's always about the heart. C.J. Mahaney says this, Does your hairstyle, clothing, or any aspect of your appearance reveal an excessive fascination with sinful cultural values? Are you preoccupied with looking like the latest American Idol winner? or the actress on magazine covers, or the immodest woman next door? Are your role models the godly women of Scripture or the worldly women of our culture? So the real issue isn't about braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. The issue was and is clothing that associates with worldly, not godly values. Clothes that say, look at me, and I'm with the world. It's a challenge. And this isn't just a challenge for women. This isn't just a challenge for women. This might be focused at them, but men, this is for you too. This is for me too. So four, four heart check questions then, and we'll be done. Whose approval am I seeking in the way I dress? Whose approval am I seeking in the way I dress? Is it God's and my spouse's? Those are good places to look. When you dress, do I want to honor my spouse? Do I want to honor me? Do I want to honor God? That'd be a great place to look for approval. Or is it the approval of others? You know, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. It can enslave us. And there are people running around enslaved to the fear of man. And it's tiring and exhausting trying to keep up with today's fashion. Trying to stay hip. Trying to stay fresh. It's going to take a lot of money and a lot of effort, and it will wear you out. 
And, and it's the wrong race to be running anyway. Whose approval am I seeking in the way I dress? Secondly, what am I trying to communicate in the way I dress? Am I trying to let everybody know, you know, roughly my social economic status? Am I trying to let people know um, other things about myself? I mean, when I, when I try to figure out what to wear, um, I, I really, my goal would be that what I wear is forgettable. I want to avoid extremes of being so underdressed that it stands out. You know, I got caping holes and, you know, pasta sauce on my shirt. You know, that's going to be a distraction. It's, that's never happened. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, if I showed up here in a tuxedo, you know, I, I'd be going off the other end. Um, drawing attention to myself. I, I want to be non-memorable. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We, we have hardly a word about Jesus' appearance. The only reason we know that he wore a seamless garment is because it fulfilled scripture. The focus on Jesus' ministry was his words, what he said. I want people to remember what I say, the encouragements I give them, the truth that I speak. I don't really want to leave much of an impression with the way I dress, personally. I hope that's not my heart. Um, three, Am I more concerned with my rights than others? Am I more concerned with my rights than others? And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes we've got to limit our freedom to serve other people. And one of the aspects of modesty, certainly, especially from a woman's end, is guarding their brothers from temptation. And I imagine there could be a frustration that can sound something like this. Why do I have to not wear this piece of clothing that looks really good on me just because there are some weak guys. Can't they just grow up and, you know, why do I have to sacrifice my freedoms for that? Again, that's not a servant's heart. We have been given liberty to serve. We've been given freedom to serve. So it's my hard attitude in picking out the way I dress. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And that's, that question always illustrates the weaker brother. If you're, if you're asking about your liberty and your clothes, what's wrong with it? You're asking the wrong question. Let me, let me give an illustration that my economics professor in college gave that I'll never forget to prove that the what's wrong with it question is the wrong question. It's a sign of immaturity. I want you to imagine that you go to Scott's and you walk into Scott's. Jeb Brewer walks into Scott's and the bells go off. He is the one millionth customer. And the TV crews are there, and they bring his family in, and he gets one minute in the money room. Jeb Brewer gets one minute in the money room. They give him a big sack, and in the money room, there are three tables. There's a table with $1 bills stacked high. There's a table with $5 bills stacked high, and there's a table with $20 bills stacked high. He gets one minute in the money room. And they, they fire the gun, the lights are flashing, and Jeb takes his sack, and he runs over to the ones table and starts stuffing ones into his sack, and all of his family and all of his friends cry out, Jeb, what are you doing? And he turns around with the sack, and he says, why? What's wrong with the ones? Well, you're asking the wrong question, aren't you? You're asking the wrong question. And I'll never forget that. If, if all, the best you've got is what's wrong with it, you're not coming at it from the right direction. You're not coming at it from the right direction. And finally, where do I believe my true beauty lies? Where do I believe my true beauty lies? Turn to 
First Peter 3. A very similar passage that makes one extra point. Very, very similar to what we just read here. First Peter 3. So I think this is at the heart of the issue, is our identity, what we really believe. First Peter 3, verses 3 to 5. Again, an exhortation given to the women. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the wearing of clothing. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the immeasurable beauty. And I love that. Immeasurable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Where do I believe my true beauty lies? And this is one of those areas where we know what the right answer is, right? We know what we should say. You know, it's, it's kind of like the uh, pastor who went down to teach in uh, the, the Sunday school class for high schoolers, and he's trying to use a word picture, and he, he says, okay, I'm thinking of an animal. It's, it's, uh, got, it's got fur and scampers about in the trees. He waits to see if anyone gets, okay. It eats nuts and it stores nuts. Nothing. Okay, it's got a big bushy tail. It's brown. Does anyone, finally, little Johnny raises his hand and says, Pastor, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds an awful lot like a squirrel. <laughs> And this is one of those times where we know what the answer should be. You know, where is your true beauty found? My true beauty is in Jesus. I only care how God looks at me. It's easy to say, but oh my goodness, is it hard to live. And this is what's going to fuel everything else, because if secretly inside you think your value really comes from what others think of you, your value really comes from the approval of others, then you're going to have a real hard time with this. But if you can buy into the fact that godliness is beautiful, that God in heaven just thinks godly character is just wondrously, indescribably beautiful. And that's going to be the heart shift that's going to make the rest of this easy. So I want to close. There's a, there's a book C.J. Mahaney wrote called Worldliness, and, and one of the chapters is on clothing and apparel. It's a great book, great little book. And he writes this um, about John Piper. John Piper writes about coming across a review of the book, The Body Project, by Joan Jacobs Brumberg. This book looks extensively at a century's worth of change in how girls view themselves. In, in the introduction, the author contrasts the diary of an adolescent in 1892 with that of a teenage girl in the 90s. So they're trying to demonstrate the, the, the worldview shift that's taken place over 100 years by contrasting diary entries from girls, teenage girls, in the 1890s with girls in the 1990s. So here is the diary of the girl in 1892 wrote this. Resolved not to talk about myself or feelings, to think before speaking, to work seriously, to be self-restrained in conversations and actions, not to let my thoughts wander, to be dignified, interest myself more in others than myself. 1990s. 
I will try to make myself better in any way I possibly can with the help of my budget and babysitting money. I will lose weight, get new lenses, already got a new haircut, good makeup, new clothes, and accessories. The book's back cover summarizes what was true a century ago. Quote, The ideal of the day was inner beauty, a focus on good deeds and a pure heart. In contrast, the environment for girls today is a new world of sexual freedom and consumerism, a world in which the body is their primary project, end quote. This cultural shift from good works to good looks parallels the departure from godliness to worldliness. Women who are professing Christians must be discerning enough to resist and reject that shift. So it's just three verses. There's a lot for us here. Men, men, are you overly confident? Are you men of prayer? Are you leading your families? Are you leading the church in prayer? Keeping your consciences clean? Dealing with issues and not letting resentments build up? And, and ladies, are, are you finding your beauty in who God sees you to be? Are you finding your beauty in godliness? Or are we adopting subtly the standards and values of this world that is passing away? It's only with regenerate hearts, it's only with minds and eyes of faith that we're going to be able to do this. And God willing, we will. God willing, we will. And he will transform us and change us so that we can be unified in godliness, unified in prayer, and unified in a passion for the gospel going out to all peoples. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your instruction to us. And we've been challenged today. We've been challenged, both the men and the women. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us the grace to take up that challenge. Lord, we know that your word never commands us to do anything that your grace will not enable us to do. So Lord, as we start to grasp onto who you'd have us to be as men, who you would have us to be as women, how you would have us gather as your church, give us the faith and the grace to begin to live it out your glory and for our good and for the sake of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.